From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with poet Tomas Q. Marine about his book Machete, published by Kanaw, which focuses on the predicament that is sometimes anger, sometimes laughter, and the mediating tool between them, which may well be the sharpest weapon we have. Machete. When they stare, I know it is my skin they fear. This face, this hair so unlike theirs. I meet their eyes and make them sway like fields of cane. You know, one of the things that really sort of filters throughout the, the collection is most of us, I've used a machete before, a, a real one. Uh, most of us haven't, you know, haven't handled one. And I feel like whenever it does pop up in the news, usually it's because there's some sort of rebellion somewhere, you know, and that's the one weapon. That's the one tool, right, uh, that the people who don't have firearms have access to. Uh, so then this tool this beautiful, ingenious tool goes from being something that we use to sustain us, you know, to clear land, to chop things, you know, chop wood, you know, for fires and all of these things. Suddenly, you know, it takes on this life that it was, you know, not intended, you know, to, to have. When they stiffen, I sharpen the edge of my smile and watch them fall. And in a way, I feel like, for example, my smile, anyone's smile, they shouldn't be weapons. But sometimes that's all you have. In the same way with love and laughter, I, I have conflicted feelings. You know, I have conflicted feelings about using them in a way that's not like, for example, let's say a shield but actually using them in a, more, in a more active way to just cut through the darkness. And I think we have to do what we have to do. And the thing that I always keep in mind is that it doesn't always have to be that way. Uh, my smile doesn't always have to be something that I'm wielding. Love doesn't always have to be something that I'm wielding, right? This is, this is not endless, I hope. You know, there is some sort of relief, you know, relief coming. I love them in my cake, how they sink in the dark coffee, where they give up the sweetness and make me take one slice at a time. So the um, narrator here is, is kind of processing these folks as sugar? Yeah, yeah. And then out of them he creates a cake? You know, he's creating something that sustains uh, because in particular in communities of color, there's, of course, outrage in these kinds of moments. But then also the outrage doesn't sustain us, not just about, you know, surviving in what oftentimes feels like a hostile country, but it's about how do we thrive? Tomas Q. Maureen, welcome to Arts and Letters. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much for being here. Here's my first question to you. Why did you call the book Pachetti? Well, I think when a collection of poems takes the title of one of the poems, I think it's really important for that particular poem to carry a lot of the notes that are in the book. And it's really emblematic of the Jobian in terms of Book of Job. It's very emblematic of the Jobian spirit that hovers over the book. So that was why I chose that, because I felt like if someone picked up the book, saw the title, flipped through, and saw that there was a poem called that, they would read that poem, and they would have a pretty good sense of what they were going to get themselves into if they would, you know, were to read the, read the whole book. Um, I think there's two different kinds of poems in the book. There are the ones that are like a single sentence, page and a half, two pages, and then there are the ones that are, you know, the nine, ten pagers. And the single sentence ones are older, and I wrote those when I was sort of stuck in this style where anytime that I would put down a period, the poem would click shut. And I would feel like, uh, okay, I didn't say everything I wanted to say in this poem. And now it's just, you know, I could go back and revise it. But in terms of length, it would just snap shut. So what I started doing was my sort of project, artistic project then was, how can I extend the sentence as long as possible, have it still make sense, be grammatically correct. And the glue that holds all of that together is those humble coordinating conjunctions that we hardly ever think about when we're talking. And I made myself this word bank of just coordinating conjunctions. And whenever I would get stuck and I wouldn't know how to keep extending the sentence, I would just drop in and in order to, or although, or because. And one of the lessons that that taught me was the importance of causality, because coordinating conjunctions absolutely clarify how one thing leads into another, even if the images or the ideas seem to kind of come out of nowhere, those coordinating conjunctions are working on the reader's mind in terms of, okay, this makes sense. We may not understand it, but it makes sense on some level. And that's a skill that I've been able to use with the longer poems that have many sentences. And now that I'm sort of free of that style where, you know, a period means the end of a poem. New Year's Eve. The racial dot map of America says green dots are blacks, blue are whites, orange are Latinos, red are Asians, and brown are Native Americans and everyone else. If this is what passes for hope, then what are the green dots between my tulips and the sea? Yeah, so the racial dot map of America is is a real thing. If you Google it, if you just Google that phrase, you can find it. And everything, the, way, the ways in which I describe the dots and what ethnicities are assigned uh, to what color, that's all on the map. Maybe somewhere green dots still mean grass. In America, Blue dots are an ocean full of fish with no gills. I need to believe I can breathe underwater. When you see your reflection in this map, what story do the dots tell you about freedom and its promises? Having that sort of bird's eye view of the 
racial demographics of our country, it was a stunning experience. It just kind of blew me away, and I thought I have to I have to write something about this, especially because of the way they assigned the colors. It just seems so bizarre. When I look at Garland, I now see the Transcontinental Railroad in the Middle Passage wrapped around our plastic tree. The year is late. Tonight, the sky will pop with color and gunpowder. The, the New Year's Eve was, uh, that, was when I, that was when I found it. It was right at the turn of the new year. I was working on this poem. So that's why, for example, the year is late, the sky will pop with color and gunpowder, the drums, you know, there's gonna be all of the fireworks. Drums pound in the distance. The only color unassigned on the map is white. No people live where the map goes white. White is prairie, forest, mountain, river, and desert. White is where the coyote growls when we decorate the night sky. White is where the brush waits for a spark to burn it all new. And, and I thought it was really interesting, the choice to just make the color white where there are no people living, like to not actually assign that to a, a group of people. And one thing that came across when I was looking at this map was there's so much acreage in this country where nobody lives, apparently. There's just so much, so much white, so many spaces that have no color assigned whatsoever. And I just don't think of the country in that way, you know, however many, you know, hundreds of millions of people now. And I'm thinking like, oh, we're just like jam packed in here like sardines. But then looking at this map, I was like, oh, we really are very much clustered, you know, clustered in these, you know, huge cities and, and then spread out in the rural areas. But there was still so much where there were, you know, if it's accurate, no people. You're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's continue our conversation with Tomas Q. Marie about his book, Machete. Like so many of us, I was a fan of Dante early on, still a fan. I think there's a reason why you can walk into any Barnes & Noble and pick up the Divine Comedy anytime you want. As a translator myself, I'd always kind of fooled around with the idea of maybe trying to translate some Dante, but he's he's been translated so many times and, and so beautifully as well. And so I thought, well, let me just try translating the first three lines of the Inferno, that, you know, that famous introduction. So I did that, and then I started comparing those three lines to what other translators had done. And I started noticing that that particular phrase, uh, selva oscura, you know, for dark wood or dark forest or however it's translated, gloomy wood. For some reason, like, I, I started uh, honing in on those, those two words and thinking, well, I wonder how if I go back to the first English Dante translations, like, what have people been doing over the last 200 years or so? So I did that, found all of those three lines uh, from 48 different English translations of Dante. It was so much fun to just research that and collect them and put them all in one document, just like stacked on top of one another and see how translators have been wrestling with that opening.
A sigh for Dave Lucas. In the middle of the road of our life, I wandered upon a dark wood, a gloomy wood, a dark wood within a darksome wood, a gloomy wood, a wood so drear, a forest dark, a darkling wood within, wood obscure, gloomy wood, darksome wood, a darkling wood, a forest dark and deep. A dark wood through a night dark wood within a darksome wood, forest dark, shadowy wood, darksome wood, dusky wood, a forest in darkness, darksome wood, gloomy wood, a darkling wood astray, dark wood, dark forest, gloom dark wood within, dark wood, dark wood, dark wood, a dark wood unfathomable. And with the 48 different documents from all different times, right? Right, So you right. were also yeah, working start, through this yeah. through time. Yeah, starting at uh, 1805, moving forward. And uh, Mary Jo Bangs is the, uh, the most recent one, which is at the very end. So then I started just stripping away all of the language except the translator's version of Selva Oscura. So then on that doc, all I was left with was just the, the 48 different translations of that phrase. And then I started collaging, you know, collaging those together. And I wanted to do it in a way that still carried, you know, that sense of foreboding that's at the beginning of the Inferno, but that also was a little funny because it, it's a lot of, there's a lot of dark wood. Dark wood, dark woods, wood so dark within a shadowed forest. A great forest bewildered inside, dark wood in a dark wood. Wood in this dark wood, dark woods in darkened forests. Dark wood, dark wood, dark wood, sunless wood in a dark forest. So as you move through these different tonalities, through these different ways of suggesting wood or dark or forest, what did you see as the shifts in tone or in translation through some of these 49 elements? And then I guess this is your, you know, penultimate translation. For me, what really stood out was the shifts from wood to forest. When I hear like a dark wood or a gloomy wood or a darksome wood, the emphasis for me to my ear is on the darkness and the collection of trees, right? The collection of trees, it's a backdrop. It's almost like an afterthought. When the translators are just using wood, uh, the emphasis is on the observer. Whereas when I would come across those few that are forest, you know, a dark forest, a darkling forest, to me, that shifted the collection of trees from the background to, to being in the foreground with the person, right? The person who's on the road, who is, who is seeing this. And now, now we have a context, we have a setting. 
we have a setting, we have a person in that setting, as opposed to this sort of disembodied voice talking about this dark wood. That could be any, you know, that could be any wood. So for me, those shifts were really interesting. And Mary Jo Bangs at the very end is the one that I feel like really kind of blows it open when she says, a dense cage of leaf, tree, and twig. Dense cage of leaf, tree, and twig that cut through our way like a knife. And we, we hardly knew the difference. A forest dark, a darkling wood within, wood obscure, gloomy wood, darksome wood, a darkling wood, a forest dark and deep, a dark wood through a night dark wood within a darksome wood. Help us a little bit with the, the notion of cut again, you bring in the machete. So for me, the idea of the forest cutting through the, the road of our life, it's literally cutting through the road, but then also in the metaphorical sense, it's this thing that has crossed, has intersected with what we thought was the course of our life, and now it's, it's here, and, and there's, there's no road around it. The only road is to either go back or to, or to keep going. And in a way it feels, as I think Dante's trying to get across at the beginning of comedy, it feels intrusive. I think we often think of nature as being fragile, and I think there's a difference between the natural world existing in a delicate balance and the natural world being fragile. Nature's so resilient, and I feel we often forget that our civilization, our lives are always pushing back trying to hold nature at bay. I mean, you know, there's a reason why we cut our grass and trim the trees. And I think depending on, on what sort of like school of philosophy you come from, it's either always encroaching or it's always trying to reclaim us. My last thought is this is all one sentence. Oh, yeah. This poem. Yeah. yeah. Heck of a sentence. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. This is Arts and Letters. Let's circle back around into our conversation with poet Tomas Q. Marine as he talks about his companion poem to the first in the collection, this time, Machetes. Machetes. I wrote a poem once that I called Machete. It was angry because I was angry when I wrote it. Angry over white supremacy and blah, blah, blah. It's okay if you haven't read it because it only had one machete in it. And everyone knows a poem with multiple machetes always trumps a poem with a single one. Machete. Oh, 
The one sort of note, and this is why I wrote the longer Machetes poem, that I felt was too quiet is the humor, the humor that is in the book. Can we reclaim that word yet? You know the one I'm talking about. Don't make me say it again. So if you're one of the few billion people who hasn't read my machete poem, the recap goes like this. A single machete, gold and shiny, descended from the Aztec heaven of jaguars and naked women on flea market paintings. That joke was going to be longer, but I can't keep a straight face for more than six lines, even when the lines are as short as these are. When we're thinking about poetry by anyone, but in particular, maybe someone that we're looking into a world that we're not so aware of, that the humorous parts not only speak to those who are reading it from the outside, but those who are maybe living it from the inside. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, with regards to the, yeah, like the, the, the humor, I thought, well, if I'm going to speak back to the single Machete poem there's probably going to be a lot of people who haven't read it. So I have to give them some sort of summary of what it is. And, and I just couldn't resist creating a fake version of that poem where someone might think who hasn't read it, think like someone who looks like me uh, with my background who wrote a poem called Machete. It would, of course, there would have to be j jaguars and Aztecs and there would have to be, uh, you know, these naked women that you see on these flea market paintings. And uh, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I couldn't resist creating this like farcical version of the poem before I introduced the real sort of synopsis of it. And that humor there is meant to, is meant to soften that entry. Do audiences like this one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 they do. Yeah. Um, I read this poem the other day and Someone came up to me afterwards and he said, it felt like you were just zooming that poem straight into my head. He was like, I couldn't, couldn't not listen. In my own way. In my own way. We talked a little bit about about the darkness, the dark wood, the, the different types of, of darkness there. And then some of the laughter that you see in Machete, but in the end, your book is about love. Like I'm not really interested in new love poems or the end of love poems. So many people have written those, but more so like in the middle of it, love poems. Because that's 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 where the living is. The hardness and the beauty are you know are there. So yeah, in in a way, this this book is very much, yeah, very much grounded in that. If you know we're not trying to protect love, and clear a space for it to extend that metaphor, right? You know, clear you know clear a space for it to exist and uh, to just you know be its you know wonderful self. Then 
then what are we doing? You know, like, how are we, how are we passing our time? So Mary Ellen's going to ask the last one, and I thought this was just terrific. I'm horning in on this interview, Tomas, because your book is so wonderful. What I'm so interested in that you're doing here as a poet that I have not necessarily seen much of is this act of revision, this act of revisiting an image, revisiting a stanza, revisiting a phrasing. And you do that, of course, also in this last poem, which then revisions, reimagines, resees the whole collection. So after you've read the final poem, it's challenging you to go back and reread and re-see the whole collection through this new and different light. I like to think I'm a beautiful life machine, but I know that will be a hard sell for some readers because this is now a poem filled with many machetes. And how can a reader ever tell when I'm being angry funny or funny angry if they won't cast off their clothes and embrace that wild inner something that roams inside all of us and join me over a pile of spare ribs, our lips smacking, stripes of sauce on our cheeks, not unlike how it was in the beginning for our species, before we had words for what a life was, or someone to say, we must change it. I love that angry, funny, funny, angry moment as a reader, because throughout the collection, I did laugh out loud, but it wasn't always necessarily, I felt comfortable in my laughter because yeah. as a white Anglo woman reading this book, I wasn't sure what I should be laughing at or, or not laughing at. And it was that edge. It was that yeah. cut. Uh, so this poem, as the reader, made me feel that it was okay that, that <laughs> I found some humor in some of those moments because I'm with you. I'm ready to go have those spare ribs, Tomas. Yeah. Well, thank and you. This isn't an ending in the sense of your poetry, but it's an ending in the sense of your book. And I just saw this as a moment that summed it all up because it is the last line, not in your poetry, but it's the last line uh, on the notes um, at the end and your acknowledgement page. I was wondering if you could just read that last line. Sure, sure. Yeah, I would love to. Love and abrazos to my family, Rebecca, Chloe, Jack, and the Booms. There isn't a darkness your laughter and love can't slice. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Thank you to composer musician and singer Jaime Barata of Ancient River with the beautiful soundscapes and song. Thank you to Joseph Fuller of Orchestrova for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Chicken for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to poet Tomas Q. Marie for showing us the importance of looking at the edges of culture 
identity, and place. And the cuts and revisions we can make through poetry, resonating in anger and laughter and love. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed these words from Philip Levine. I still believe in this country that it can fulfill the destiny Blake and Whitman envisioned. I still believe in American poetry. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.